Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for uh, clarity and um, pray, we pray that we would remember why we're following you and see what it really means to, to know you in an ultimate sense is to, is to behold your glory. And so we want to be prepared and ready at your coming. And we ask that you would help us do that. Lord, there, there may be some here today that are, are doing things um, in their private life that they know if it was the return of Christ that they would, be, they would feel ashamed. And there may be some here that are in their lives together where they know they would, if Jesus were to return today, that they would... Um, love each other differently and forgive each other and serve each other and bless each other and watch the words that they would say to one another. Lord, we're all guilty of not keeping the end in mind and we want to do that better. So I pray this would help us do that. In Christ's name, amen. Sometimes the things that we ought to be doing are, um, seem pretty simple, and we just get away from them. And uh, I think for us, when we're thinking about this passage, it's kind of, uh, what's the next thing that you should be doing? It should be in your mind all the time. What's the next thing that you could do that would be most to the glory of God and the good of others? And um, that's what you really want to keep in your mind, because that's what keeps you prepared. It's doing the next right thing that you have to do. And um, that could be as simple as the next right thing when I walk in and I see my spouse today and I speak to him or her in the proper way or it might be the next right thing with my children or it might be at my job where I'm with coworkers who are really negative. What's the next right thing that will be the most to God's glory and the good of others so that if he comes, I am ready. I want to be living in a way where I keep Christ coming at the center of my heart and life. That's what we want to do. Looking at chapter 13, we are talking about you know a couple of things. And when we first looked at this, we said there was a lens, that, like a future lens. which we, we, The first time we looked at it, we looked at uh, what we called the immediate lens. But we said there was a future lens, a historical lens, and an immediate lens that you could put on and read this chapter. And I think that's important. The future would be like thinking about the very end of the end times, maybe, in some way. Uh, the historical would be like, okay, these things have, have already taken place, um, which will be what we'll talk about, eighty seventy, and the, uh, the, the temple being destroyed. And we, we could say, oh, that's a lens that you could read this by. And it would be helpful. And we are going to look at both of those. And then, like I said, a couple of weeks back, it was the immediate lens where we said, oh, my goodness, there's so much language that goes on between uh, here and the, the end of the book. And uh, what the disciples experienced, what Jesus experienced, looked a lot like what you see in this chapter. And so, but we've done that and we addressed that. Now we're going into the, the future and kind of historical lens. And hopefully I'll be able to help you see that as we go forward. Um, 
this is the longest portion of teaching in Mark that Jesus does. And so it is helpful to understand it. And hopefully um, maybe you've studied it before and you've heard people talk about eschatology. I mean, some of it perhaps is that. And other, there's other things that are being taught. But some people say, oh, this is all about the end times uh, and the end of the end kind of thing. Where many of us here would say, no, nah, it's, it's got a mixture of things about what has already happened and things that will happen. And so that's kind of where we are today. I'm going to kind of do a blend of things as if they have already happened and some that will um, happen and the way we might look at that. So hopefully that will help you as you think about it. Um, But that 33 through 37 that Lanny read, it shows you the purpose of this chapter. And that's one of the things you have to do. When you read your Bible well, like if you're saying, I want to read my Bible well, you do a lot of times say, what's the purpose, right? Well, the purpose in verse 33 to 37 is that the disciples are exhorted to be faithful wherever they find themselves. Wherever you find yourself in history, be faithful. That's the big, at the heart of what's going on. Throw away the timetable or some chart and just stay ready. You got so much to stay ready. It's a your life is that way. Um, there are people that look forward to a wedding, but they don't prepare themselves to be a wife. Prepare yourself to be a wife. It, it, you look forward to, oh, I can't wait to find a woman and settle down and have a family. Prepare yourself to be a husband. You've you got to get ready. You don't become a great father by living like a degenerate for the first 20 years of your adulthood and then decide to have a child. In the same way, your preparation, like when you think about spiritual things, is like you spend your whole life in preparation to meet the king and hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That's what you do. So if you say, oh, I'm all about the end times, what that tells me is, Either you're thinking about some things out there that you don't know anything about really and that Jesus says he doesn't know about and, and you're, also, you're probably not spending a lot of time thinking about you. Looking in the mirror and considering the place that you are, the place where you're at today. And so I think that's important to see that. Now, if I was, you know, uh, there was a guy, Edwards, that I, I think highly of in this whole study of Mark and He would say, when you're looking at this, we are looking at both the immediate future, these things, and the end of time related to those days. And I thought that was helpful. It's helpful to think about it in that way. So hopefully that will kind of help you as we move through this text. Um, You may not all agree with that. That's okay. We don't have to agree with all the stuff. As long as we agree upon this, you better get yourself ready. Stay ready. Stay ready. Stay ready. Stay ready. That's what we should do. Okay. So... Another way that kind of described this, and this it follows to the way in which we described it before, is be watchful and assured in trouble and triumph. So it's almost like you're, we're preparing ourselves to always be ready. The first 13 verses will deal with, again, you could interpret it in different ways, but the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Then in 14 to 27, as he describes it, the tribulation and the second coming. And then 28 to 31 the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem again. So he's going to address that again. And then 32 to 37, the second coming and watchfulness. So those things are helpful to me. It's a helpful thing to help me think through it. And um, 
it really is, it's almost like it's, it's, there's this admonishment against attempting to work everything out, all the details out, um, and, and instead you're admonished to be alert and watchful, just always preparing, always getting ready to do the work that you have to do. And um, within a church, you would almost say, like, what is God having me do in this church at this moment? What, what, what should I be doing? How should I be serving? What ways that I, can I best prepare this church to be ready for the return of the King? And so that's what we do. The premium of discipleship is placed not at, on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially in trials, adversity, and suffering. i just say one more thing. Christianity teaches us, and Jesus teaches us, that suffering and adversity are a part of following Jesus. That's just part of it. So if you think like, hey, what I want for my church is a place for my kids to have fun, they'll probably not be prepared to endure the difficulties that they will face. So you want that? Go somewhere where they'll be filled with cotton candy and chilling and just doing whatever they want and then, like, when everything comes crashing down, they will not be able to stand. If that's what you want, there's plenty of places to go do that. I mean, that's, that's, there's plenty of that, right? We can enjoy ourselves, have fun. But at the end of the day, we're constantly trying to prepare you for the troubles that you will face and be, so that you will stand firm. This is an army. We are an army. We are soldiers in the fight. We are going to have people shooting at us, spiritually speaking, internally, externally, in every place that you go. We have to understand we are at spiritual war. That's, what, that's where we are. That's, what we, that's where we live. We are not here for your kids to be happy. We want them to be holy. And we believe them being holy will lead to the greatest happiness that they could ever experience. And that's the same for you. That is the same for you. Our plan is to train you up to be such great soldiers in Christ's army that you would disciple your kids in that way. You're sending them out in that way. So, we start here. And we look at the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Again, not everybody would see it this way, but I just want you to kind of put that in your mind as we go forward. Verses 1 and 2. Um, the disciples are coming out. They see, oh, this building's so beautiful. And Jesus says to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone. Everything's going to be thrown down. It, this is hard to do. This thing was um, under construction for 50 years at this time, and it's unfinished. It's just hard to understand that and to grasp that. As we've talked about, it's 35 acres. It, 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 it accommodates like it would almost be like 12 football fields. You know, it's massive. There were stones that they said were bigger than this, but the ones that they found weighed over one million pounds. This massive facility. There's places where columns where three men could, not, I mean, could barely wrap their arms all the way around these columns. Just this massive place that is unbelievable. And so everybody really, there was a lot of hope in that. You and I, in our time period, were like, man, we could go and blow up anything like that. It's not that big a deal. But like, at this time, it's not like that. I mean, they, you know, we might talk about moats, you know, to build something around to protect the castle. I mean, this thing was big. 
And it was right. And it was one of those things where you're like, man, this is not something that would be coming down. So Jesus is saying that. It's coming down. And then 40 years later, the writer, which we'll mention, Josephus, he said, hey, it came down. It came down. Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be raised to the ground. And it happened. And so that is what we see. And so the issue then is, this is all going to come crashing down. Then you need to stand firm in the face of adversity. And that's what you see in 3 through 13 as you're looking at this. The first kind of uh, thing that he addresses is there's going to be these false messiahs, these natural disasters, these political disasters. And then the second thing is the persecution that will come for believers in these different times and these struggles and all the things going on. And so they go up on the Mount of Olives, which is if, we were, if this was the Temple Mount, you'd go up on this mountain or mount and you can look down at the temple. It would be very clear and, and capable of seeing that. Uh, there's the, the, the four that were first called, the disciples, they are a part of listening to Jesus speak. He is sitting down, looking down over it and explaining to them uh, what's taking place. In verse 4 and 5, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. And so there's this struggle here of um, that, that, that it would be easy to be led astray. People are constantly wanting to hear uh, this, this, these things explained. And uh, they're looking for hope, and they're trying to find it in, large, in larger-than-life leaders. I mean, that's part of the world that we live in. And so this destruction of the temple is a huge thing that we see. I mean, it's a, and not only that, uh, it is, if you read this in some ways, you might say it's pointing to something greater that is going to come, some other great destruction in the world. And we'll look at that in a little bit. And so um, another time Edward said, the fall of Jerusalem and the coming kingdom of God and his Messiah were intricately linked in the minds of people. They would think, hey, Jerusalem's going to be attacked. Messiah will show up on a white horse, and he will fight the battle for us. So um, even if you read, I think I mentioned that book, Night, not too long ago, where uh, there was this prayer for the kingdom of God, and there was this longing to see Messiah come and rescue, kind of was the picture. So verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and lead many astray. So there's these, um, like, uh, you almost say, like, I think the way to think about these is, these, these people that were coming up, again, the church is looking for Messiah and Israel's looking for Messiah. And so there are these people that are going to come up there and speak and they're, they're saying, I am he, I am being a statement tied to God. And they're talking about that thing. And so uh, they're hearing about these people that have come. Uh, you see in Acts chapter 5, there's a guy named Thutis uh, in mid, the mid-40s. He boasted of signs and led many astray. There was an Egyptian, Josephus talked about I believe in the 60s of someone that people were being drawn away by them. And, but again, when they say I am, they're saying, hey, I'm the one. And so there's going to be many people doing things like that. And then he says in verse 7 and 8, there will be these wars that will alarm people. Nations will come up against one another. There's going to be earthquakes, these earthly disasters that come. All of that's going on. And by the way, all of that happened before AD 70. There were big disasters. There was fear of war. I mean, there was a time when the, a Roman emperor, he was about to attempt to erect a statue of himself 
or to himself in the temple of Jerusalem. Um, it, so that was going on. There was catastrophic things going on in AD 66. All this stuff is going on, and it leads to revolts, and they're watching this stuff take place, um, and, and all of that kind of we're seeing. And so there were famines. I mean, I don't have to mention all of that, but earthquakes. You can see like Pompeii that just totally was destroyed. So all of this stuff is going on, and I think it's important to understand that. Um, what, what The way the church should read these, I think, is those are certainly events that have taken place, and um, you should see it and understand it. They're birth pains in tribulation, you might say. Uh, the second concerns um, the persecution of Christian believers. Look at 9 to 13. And you can just see that. Again, that's why I said, like, we're preparing people to, like, stand the course of the test of time. And uh, we want you to do that in, in the next generation to do the same. And so what he says is there are these councils um, in synagogues and governors and kings and all these battles that are going to be with, with these leaders that are going to take place and, and there will be struggles um, with them. And God's going to empower his people to help. He's going to help them as they encounter those things like that. So I just think it's important to understand that. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. That these people are facing those kinds of struggles. And those real struggles and battles. And so all of that's happening. And we also see this witness of the church in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. They are witnessing. They're sharing the gospel out there. All of this stuff is taking place. Um, so look at verse 11. And when they bring you to the trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. So in preparing yourself to be ready, part of the thing is to say to yourself, like, hey, these things are coming. And part of it is saying, listen, when they come, this is what you need to do. Because you can't be prepared for everything. You can't have every answer. You don't always know what you ought to be doing or say or all that. But in verse 11 says that in the hour when you need it, it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So God's going to be with you. God's going to be with you. Some of you prepare and prepare and prepare for everything that could happen to yourself physically and all that kind of stuff. You use a lot of mental energy trying to prepare for things. But the reality is, what he says is basically, when you're faced with that hour, God's not going to leave you. Jesus promised, I will be with you. And we have to say that. He is going to be with us throughout whatever troubles that we face. God will speak through them to whoever they stand before. They will be witnesses to the king and uh, his kingdom. Verse 12 and 13 gets tough because um, you see here, Brother will deliver brother to death, and father is child. And children will rise against parents and put them to death. There's going to be this like persecution that breaks up families, siblings and parents, and all those things. That stuff gets rough, where you're like, seriously? These people are coming against one another. There's this adversity that's so great that they're going to come against one another. Um, all of this is kind of going on because, again, when you live your life, Following Jesus, there are going to be troubles. So the life of faith is not exempt from adversity. That's just what we would say. It's not exempt from adversity, but a reliance on the promise of God to bear witness to the gospel in adversity. Like that, He's going to help you. And that's the way you prepare. That's what, why this chapter is about helping you prepare. Get your mind right. And then prepare yourself over and over and over again. 
we've been doing uh, the fighter verse uh, thing this year. We last year we did something else, but this year we're trying to memorize the fighter verse. Why? Because I'm wanting to help myself and my family uh, memorize scripture because I want them to be prepared. I want them to be able to fight the good fight. And I don't want them like, just to know the, my favorite Bible verse. I want them, there's people that have thought about what are good verses to help you fight the fight. And so that's part of the way, the equipment that God has given us and that I'm giving to them, encouraging them, I guess you could say, trying to, to take before them. So that, that verse 1 to 13, we talk about the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And then verse 14 to 27 I think there is this shift of the tribulation, you might call, and second coming um, that's on display here in verses 14 through 18. You see here this abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, be, ought not stand, um, and this, this frightening thing that is taking place. And so um, if you've ever read anything about abomination of desolation, uh, one of the things you would read is there's passages like Daniel 9, in Daniel 9 and 11 and chapter 12, that talk about that. And there, uh, even in, in other extra-biblical literature, there is the description of Antiochus IV, this Syrian general who outraged the Jews in 168 B.C. He erected an altar of Zeus and put it on the altar of burnt offering in the temple and sacrificed a sow on it. And they would say that was one of the... That, that happened. And so that's one of the things that you, when you think about that, that is a fulfillment of that, And so there are some people that are going to speak of that and see that. And then there's also, I mean, if you're thinking about it some, um, it, it's one of those things that, that that led to like this revolt and the people like a great struggle and trouble and all kinds of stuff. And then another possibility is to, or maybe you would say another example of that would be able to look at the destruction of the temple where there's this abomination of desolation as... Uh, you're looking at it and you're saying, you know what? Like, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Titus, the, the, the emperor, I mean, what they're going to do is they're going to come in and destroy the whole thing. And so that is an abomination of desolation. This holy thing corrupted and destroyed and all those things. So, again, he, there's this, I think there's this preparing yourself for the present for those disciples to understand, like, there's coming this day and it's going to get really dark and lots of trouble and a lot of frightening things that are going to happen and you're going to see it. Now, there are some who would read this and say, well, maybe that is that, but there's coming a day where they would look more future, like future beyond AD 70 and say, well, there's coming a day where there'll be this man of lawlessness, this antichrist figure from 2 Thessalonians who will exalt himself in the temple as God. So some people are looking forward. So some people are saying, look, for us sitting here today, we're all looking back to AD 70. Some people are looking totally forward and to await this day when this Antichrist figure will come. And uh, the way Edwards states this, which kind of is helpful to me, like he sees this as a, as a type of what maybe is to come in some way so that what happens in AD 70 when everything's destroyed and that he's been trying to prepare them for well, ultimately, um, there'll be something that will come in the future where there'll be this cataclysmic event and the rejection of um, God and his people, and there will be great suffering and trouble all around. And that, that, that what happens in 87 is kind of pointing you forward 
to what will come in the future, which, I, I mean, I can, I can go with that and understand that. So um, I think it's just important to say this, and we're going to say it throughout. Uh, Jesus is not speaking of a salvation that kind of details everything out in the end so that we understand everything that's going to happen. But rather what he's doing is he's trying to show you what it means to follow him in trouble, in the suffering, in the difficulty, and stay the course. Because no matter what day or hour that you live in, you want to be found faithful. And you want to run the race well. And so as you continue forward in 19 to 23, we see tribulation language here. Um, and what you see here is, I think it's important just to think about, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, and then this is maybe this ultimate future great tribulation that might come right before the second coming, however that looks. It, it, we have to think in terms of like, okay, however I come down, I do understand that tribulation and trial and struggle for the people of God is part of what it means to be a Christian living before the second coming. And if you read the Revelation well, I think what you'll see is a series of judgments. And they, they almost look the same. Three series of judgments. And as they grow, they grow in intensity in my mind. When I think about them, they're growing in intensity. At the end of every one of them, there's this great cataclysmic storm of things. And so in my mind, when I think about that, uh, that's the way I see it. I think you live in a state like that where we're living in a state of difficulties and rebellions against God and, and, and people in churches all over the world suffering and Christian suffering, we live in that, and we're awaiting the day when Jesus will return. But we just have to know and tell ourselves, tribulation is part of what we deal with in this life. Okay, verse 19 and 20. For in those days there will be uh, such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation and, until now, never will be. And, and if the Lord had not cut the day short, no human being would be saved. Again, you could read this as, that's what happened in AD 70 with the temple. Or you could say something like, there is coming a day where certainly AD 70 points you to something of that nature, but there's coming a day of something far uh, more horrific that um, if, if, that, if, they had not, if it had not been stopped, um, it all would be lost. It, but, but, God, but for God's love of his people, his love for the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days so that not all of them would be done away with, annihilated and destroyed. And so I think that's important to see. So, um, so these people do not escape, the people of God do not escape the times of tribulation, uh, and I think it's something we have to remind ourselves of. So 21 and 22. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, uh, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And so these kind of messianic pretenders are going to come um, before uh, the fall of Jerusalem, as we saw. And then, there, then we see this again, maybe, as we're looking forward to the greater future here. Now, verse 23, But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. The mark of faithfulness is watchfulness. And that's not watchfulness like where you're like reading the newspaper and saying like, I, I'm telling you, you look, look at what's going on over there right now. I am telling you. You know, that, I mean, that happens like every few years. It's not that kind of watchfulness, I don't think. I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a watchfulness that makes you obedient in the present. 
It just It's a watchfulness that keeps you so awake to your desires, to the people around you, to, to the, the way in which they're thinking, the way you're thinking. Um, you're constantly being aware and catching those thoughts and, and bringing them under the obedience of Christ. So believers could not calculate when or where or how the end will come, but when it comes, nobody's going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. And so prepare for His coming. That's the thing, the work you got to do. That's the hard work that you have to do. That's the thing where you got to pray, oh my goodness, Lord, make us do the hard work to prepare. Now, verse 24 to 27, when you're looking at it, it, it speaks of the return of the Son of Man in glory. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon and stars will not give its light and the star will be falling... Stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when, and then when they see, sorry, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out angels and gather His elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth. So I, I think it's just still telling us like there is this great darkness, this great difficulty, these great troubles. Like I say, you see in the Revelation storms of difficulties and all of these battles that the church is still a part of. They're awaiting the day when Christ will call the elect from the four winds of the earth. He is going to bring in the elect. He's going to do it all at one time. The church has lived through those things, through those tribulations and troubles, like AD 70 and like whatever comes after that. The church is facing trouble for their commitment to Jesus Christ. All these powers um, will be uh, coming to a head and they will be crushed. Really, when people thought about it in those days, the stars were like the heavenly powers that were fighting you know, against uh, uh, God's people and his, his anointed ones. His, his people called out special for him. And so the death of Christ spells the doom of these people, but it's not the fulfillment of all that victory is yet to be seen. And so we await that. And while we wait, we experience suffering, but we will not miss when he comes and experience the glory of him gathering us up. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it speaks of like if you are dead in Christ, you'll, you'll be resurrected. And if you are alive when he returns, you will be raptured in a moment to be with him. And all of our enemies will be crushed forevermore. And so I think you've seen like verses thir- three, or the first 13 verses, the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. 14 to 27, this tribulation and kind of second coming language. And then in 28 to 31, I feel like he returns to the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. That seems to make sense to me. We go back to this idea that there's um, uh, with these, the fig tree, uh, in late spring, when winter is past and there's warm weather at hand, uh, the branches uh, grow buds. And so it's saying like, hey, this is coming. This is coming. You need to remind yourself of the nearness of the end. We don't know when the end will be, but you always got to be ready. You're always preparing yourself to be ready. When you see these things happening, refer, referring to the birth pains, um, there's something leading up, and you just kind of have to keep that in your mind. Uh, now, the discussion or the generation discussion, that's kind of hard for a lot of us, hard for me too. This generation that will not pass away um, before they see all of these things take place. Uh, I, I think that the best way to see that is that generation saw the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. That generation saw those things take place. 
And so what we've been going back before, or we kind of gone back and forth to the, from the temple to the second coming and the things surrounding that, and then again to the temple here, and then we'll see kind of the second coming again. And so they saw that, um, and, and they saw that in, in living color. Those people experienced that. Um, and if you think about kind of the, if you think about the first coming and the second coming and all that's tied into that, those things are, are kind of unified. And, and I, sometimes we want to break them all out into pieces, but I think they're all unified. When the Son of Man, though, comes, he comes in the clouds, and what he's going to do is restore all things. He's going to crush the wicked and set up his people forever. Then, this last portion here in verse 32 to 37 is kind of like just saying, get, get, your, get ready. Get yourself ready. I, I was, there's a book I'm about to read, and um, it's about like, I guess it may be called Tiny Habits. And it's, um, it's about like if you, let's say you wanted to floss your teeth. I'll throw that in there for the dentist in the house or dentist multiple. Um, the guy argues that like, you know, if you're going to floss your teeth, you need to put your um, floss next to your toothbrush. And start with like saying, I'm going to floss one tooth a day. Now they wouldn't, dentists would be like, you shouldn't do that, which they'd want you to. Because they're like, man, they don't floss their teeth, I get to work on them more. No, but, uh, but like, it's like, uh, it's just start by doing one and make these little incremental steps to remind yourself. If you get to the place where you can floss all your teeth perfectly, every time you brush your teeth, it's like, good job. But I think sometimes when we think about life and try to make changes or whatever, we try these, like, to develop these massive plans on, a Google, on Google Sheets of all the things that we're going to do, or in an Excel document, or on a sauna, if you ever use that, or whatever it might be. And you create all these things, and you're like, oh, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the most uh, vigilant person in the whole world. And I'd say, man, don't be crazy. You know, just settle down. And, and build your life, add in little things, little things. For us, um, I'm telling you, the read, pray, sing thing in our family's life, uh, we were having dinner with some folks the other night, and uh, I, I knew we wouldn't have time to do it, and so we just did a really quick thing. And, and it's almost like so second nature to my children that they don't even know um, that that's abnormal, that somebody would make that a part of their life. It is like... And it's not like it's all, it's not like they're like uh, perfect kids or everybody's paying attention. None of that, you know. It's always a disaster. But, not always, but it can be. But it's like you're adding little things. And what I would say to you is like when you're thinking about the day of Christ's return, the way in which you keep yourself thinking about those things is that you put little things in your life that force you to do it. And if it's like, man, I just wish I could memorize a verse this year or whatever, you got to put it somewhere in, in an area where you're already working. You just got to add it to that spot, you know. So for some of you, it might be buy those cards and put it by your bed so that right before you went down at night, you read that verse. That will, will, will point you a lot, it will point you in the direction of thinking about the return of Christ and preparing yourself for it. It will help you fight the good fight. So... Concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. And people get frustrated about this, and they'll be like, man, why does Jesus not know? 
That doesn't even make sense. He's God. He knows everything. That doesn't, you know. And people get frustrated with it. He is, um, the way in which uh, one author wrote it, it says, Jesus' acceptance of his human limitation and his full relinquishment of the future into the Father's hand as the divine Son is not something that sets Jesus apart from humanity but binds him to humanity as an example to follow. It's like he has complete trust in the Father, that he can relinquish all, all of his, you might say, rights as a son and totally entrust himself to him. And it sets an example to us that we might say, you know what, he is totally in, in, in connection with the Father where he just allows himself to say, I, I, whatever the Father has, I am happy to trust that he has the timetable laid out. Okay, so I'm going to try to finish up here. Verse 33 through 37, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Every one of us, every one of us should be encouraged to stay awake. Everyone here, you might say, well, man, I struggle with staying awake in a sermon. Be like, look, then figure out a way to stay awake. You know, I struggle with like thinking about anything spiritual past Sunday. I would encourage you like work to stay awake, to consider the things that might be hindering you. And then try to build in your life small little things, little things that will help push you to think about the future, to stay awake and to be prepared. Because, and I think it's important to see this, this is not something that is um, easy for us to do. And we're going to see that in the disciples' life. They kept falling asleep. It was just for one night. But you have a lifetime of staying awake and you have to do it. And I, and I encourage you, uh, with your family, do the best that you can to raise them, the, of people who are sober-minded about spiritual things. And it will take a lot from you because you're going to have to do it day after day after day, and you cannot back off and you can't quit. One of the things that um, Nick Saban, you know, just retired, and I, I appreciate him. And some, somebody say amen. Man, come on. Now, no, but I love the process because everything he did was about the process. He's working the process, working the process. And um, even when he had success in an area, uh, that was some of the, he said that's some of the worst times for a, a team, you know? It, like if a church is doing well, it's some of the worst times for a church because, like, um, each one of you have a part in this place. Each one of you do. And what you need to really do is do your job. Do your job. Don't worry about everybody else's job. Don't worry about what all is going on here and there and everywhere so you know all the news about every person. Do your job. Raise your family. Be here. Serve. Bless. Encourage. Love your wife. Train your children. Like, do your job. Stay awake. Because he's coming, and when he comes, you don't want to not be ready. If you are lost here today, with no knowledge of Jesus Christ, you have never trusted him 
You have lived your life trusting in yourself, alienated from Christ. The most frightening thing in the world from you, for you would be that you're living in a perpetual state of not being awake. My prayer is today is that God would open your eyes to see, that you would hear the gospel, you would turn to him, and you would follow him, not just today, but the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and ask for wisdom that we might be a people who are awake, that we might be a people who are preparing ourselves for tribulation. We know we face tribulation now. We know there are things that may come in the future that would be even greater. But as we anticipate those things, we have great hope that you will never leave us or forsake us. You will draw us into your kingdom. We will dwell with you forever. And we praise God for that. In Christ's name, amen.